Good afternoon, everyone. Happy New Year. We now call the uh, Health Service Board for regular meeting for January 2024, uh, duly opened and called to order. I'd like for you to stand and join me with the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We'll now have a roll call. Thank you, President Scott. Our call to order was at 1.02 p.m. And our agenda item number two is roll call, starting with President Scott. Present. Vice President Howe. Present. Commissioner Breslin. Present. Commissioner Canning. Present. Supervisor Dorsey. Present. Commissioner Follinsby. Present. Commissioner Zavansky. Present. And with that, we have quorum. We have a full board today. Everyone's here. Welcome back. Oh, my back. God. <laughs> <laughs> we'll now move to item number three. Agenda item number three is general public comment, an opportunity for members of the public to comment on any matters within the board's jurisdiction that is not on the agenda, including requesting that a board, mat board place a matter on a future agenda item. I'll be reading our full instructions for anyone joining us today, and those will be presented on the screen via WebEx. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. The Health Service Board welcomes public participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at the beginning of the meeting and an opportunity to comment on each agenda item. In-person public comment will be first, then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. The Health Service Board will hear up to 30 minutes of remote public comment total for each agenda item. Remote public comment from people who have received an accommodation due to a disability will not count toward that 30-minute limit. Members of the public attending the meeting via phone can call in by dialing 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2663-944-9644, then press pound. You'll be prompted to enter the webinar password 1145, then press pound. Press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue, and you'll hear the prompt, you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until I call on your name. When the system message says your line has been <clears throat> unmuted, this is your time to speak. You'll be muted when the time has expired. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the queue to speak. A raised hand icon will appear next to your name. When you're unmuted in the system, a request to unmute will appear on your screen. Please select unmute to speak. Once you hear my, myself say welcome caller, you can begin speaking. When your time has expired, you will be muted. Please click on the raise hand icon to lower your hand. Members of the public are encouraged to state their name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining. When your three minutes have ended, I'll, call, I'll say thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and I'll unmute the next caller. We want to thank SFGov TV and Media Services for sharing the meeting with the public today. And we'll move to our in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium. And we'll move to our remote public comment. And as of now, we have zero callers in the queue at this time. We'll wait five more seconds to see if anyone wants to participate in remote public comment. And there are no callers in the queue at this time. With that, public comment is now closed.
Thank you. We'll now move to item number four. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number four is approval with pot possible modifications of the minutes of the meeting set forth below. This is an action item, and we will be um, reviewing the December 14th, 2023 Health Service Board regular meeting minutes pre presented by President Scott. I'm prepared to entertain any edits, uh, modifications, or changes to the minutes for the December board meeting. And President Scott, um, Commissioner uh, Follinsby and Vice President Howe submitted edits that right. I have and can enter into the final. Okay, document. thank you. So those have been incorporated. I know that I made a few modifications as well, and those have been incorporated. So is there any others? If not, I'm willing to entertain a motion for their adoption. Mr. President, I move that we adopt the December meeting minutes. It's been properly moved and seconded that we adopt the meetings as uh, minutes as distributed for the December 14th, 2023 board meeting. Uh, is there any further board comment? I think that the minutes has, has been distributed, but also um, amended and modified. It amended and modified, yes. Uh, is there any further board comment? Hearing none, we'll now have public comment. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment procedures will, will be displayed on the screen via WebEx. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on SFGovTV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has come to the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment. And there are no callers in the queue at this time. We can wait five more seconds to see if anyone wants to join remote public comment. No one has joined the remote public comment. With that, public comment is now closed. Okay, I will now call for a roll call vote. A roll call vote starting with President Scott. Aye. Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zavansky. Aye. Uh, the motion carries unanimously. We'll move to item number five. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number five is President's report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by President Scott. I'll just make one comment. It's relative to the uh, general issue of public comment at these board meetings, as <coughs> highlighted at last, uh, last month's meeting. I've asked several parties to do some collective research and then we'll bring this item back for uh, a vote and discussion as an action item at our February meeting. This is on general public comment and how we will conduct this going forward. Uh, you can refer to the minutes uh, around that discussion uh, from the last meeting. So that's my report for today. Is there any other board comment on my comments? If not, we'll now have public comment on my comments. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGovTV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public <coughs> comment. And we have one caller on the line. 
We'll wait five more seconds to see if any of our callers want to join public comment for this agenda item. No callers have requested to participate in the remote public comment. With that, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll move to item number six. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number six is the director's report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Abby Yant, SFHSS Executive Director. Thank you. Good afternoon. Happy New Year, Commissioners. Um, my director's report today um, highlights a number of uh, administrative uh, issues that we're managing at HSS. Uh, first and foremost, a reminder about the blackout notice period that we are uh, in the middle of and will be through June when we complete approval of the rates. Um, also, uh, the Health Service Board has two member positions uh, whose terms um, end in 24, and therefore we are conducting an election uh, that will take place in May of 24, with the official election practices beginning January 12th, which is like tomorrow, right? Um, so. Uh, uh, details are available from our offices or on our website. We put materials in your packet. Um, to, uh, completed nomination materials are due back to the San Francisco offices by February 16th. So um, for those that are interested in putting their name in the hat, uh, there is a procedure for doing that. The, the voting itself is carried out by the uh, registrar's office. Uh, so that is not something that we do, but that is done <clears throat> at, on our request by the um, uh, registrar voters. Uh, the um, director Yant. Yes. Can you tell us who the two commissioners are, just as a oh, matter of public? Sure. Oh, it's Commissioner Karen Breslin and Commissioner Christopher Canning. Okay. Thank you. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. Uh, the United Healthcare and the UCSF Medical Group are at the table negotiating, uh, is what I have been told by both parties, and uh, we're looking forward to a final resolution any day now. It was kind of indicated before Christmas that we would get that for a present, but we haven't received it yet, so maybe FedEx is a little late delivering. Uh, but it, um, it continues to be a concern, and um, we're very um, interested in seeing that we get a resolution quickly. I'd like to make a comment about uh, I've, what I've heard on this. I received an email regarding um, United Healthcare and Sutter contract and saying that was terminated on 12-31-2023. So is it also Sutter as well as um, UCSF? Uh, that is, my understanding is that the United Healthcare Sutter contract renewal was completed prior to December 31st, but it actually didn't expire until July of 24. So that's for sure. So that, that is what I've been informed, and I don't know if uh, Monica is here from United Healthcare if you have anything to say about that. If so, is there United Healthcare? Please come yeah, forward, forward just to clarify this so that we don't have people running to, into panic about contracts expiring, please. Yes, uh, good afternoon, President Scott, Commissioners, Executive Beyond, Monica Nascencio with United Healthcare, and I did wanna say that yes, we do have our, our Sutter contract is finalized, so there, that is not open. So how about UCSF? 
And I, Abby, uh, Executive Yant, you know, I think it, uh, provided uh, the, the right points. Um, we are in active negotiations. We're very close to finalizing those. And so we hope to have good I, news very soon. I actually called a, a doctor uh, two days ago, and they said there wasn't no contract. I couldn't make an appointment because there wasn't any contract. So um, this was like two days ago. So something's changed since then, you think, or is still up in the air? Yeah. yeah. Something's changed since then? It was like, this was like two days ago that I called uh, a doctor, and I said I, they couldn't see me because there wasn't a contract. Uh, yes, the, I think the question is, has something changed in the last few days? And uh, we're not aware of anything that's changed in the last few days. We're happy to take, um, if, if there's some questions or issues, I'm happy to take that aside. and. Um, and we can address that for you. You have any idea when this might? I mean, because doctor visits are being held up. Yeah, we we expect it to be handled very shortly. We're we're very close. I to think that's as far as you're able to go, and I think the executive director has made clear what her perception is of the negotiations at this point in time. Thank you very much for uh, clarifying the Sutter dimension of this. So let's move Thank on you. with the rest of the executive director's report. Um, okay, and the second thing, uh, director, uh, yet yeah, the RFP would, that you're talking about going out for uh, includes a Medicare Advantage, which would be United Healthcare. Yeah, that is the next item in my director's report. For, okay. Thanks for getting me on the right page. Um, and yes, the RFP was issued uh, in December. And uh, we have it up on the web page for anybody that wants to take a look at what that RFP looks like. It's pretty voluminous uh, with a lot of information and uh, high, highlights uh, some of the services that we are all uh, share uh, concerned about having adequate ac access to physicians uh, in the Bay Area. Um, so we're very interested in uh, hearing what the um, uh, applicants have to say about that as we move forward in the review process of their submissions for the RFP. Seems to me like we need more choices. For, we really don't have any competition at this point. You know, it's United Healthcare and Kaiser. Y yes, and as, as you may recall, when we presented the decision to move forward with the uh, RFP for that um, Medicare Advantage PPO plan, um, we mentioned that we would be also considering a Medicare HMO plan um, in in the following year. So um, we we are aware, but there's the 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 volume of work associated with these RFPs is is enormous. Um, and um, I hats off to uh, the contracts team and everyone that supports them in taking this on. But we could not do both at once, so we did it in this order. And you—it looks like we've got five folks that have thus far responded. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, we uh, a couple of things that you're going to hear more about uh, when uh, Leticia Harris and team uh, update us on where we're at on the strategic plan. But I wanted to highlight in my director's report the advanced primary care project that has been something that's been conceptualized uh, a couple of years ago and is now underway uh, 
uh, the Purchasers Business Group on Health has a big initiative around advancing the practice of primary care. Uh, Blue Shield has been a, a really great partner in exploring on how that can be actualized in this community. And so they were um, able to uh, announce last week that that's um, underway. And so you'll hear a little more detail about that um, when we present the strategic plan, but we're very excited to be uh, supportive of independent practitioner physicians and how they are able to um, enhance their services to be, uh, to be uh, uh, an advanced primary care practice, which um, would allow them to do more wraparound services to support the health and well-being of our members. So it's uh, very cutting edge, very necessary, and really exciting to be a part of that. Um, so the also, um, I've worked with the uh, Rand Coleridge and the Enterprise and Analytics team. We mentioned it the last time that we were going to uh, stand up a website where we members could learn about uh, how to. We all get these notices from time to time uh, that there's been a data breach with some service that um, houses our data. Healthcare, unfortunately, is also subject to these types of things. Fortunately, we, as we track them, we work very closely with the Department of Technology cybersecurity teams to put everything in place to protect our data. Uh, the plans do a very good job of that as well. And then what we've seen over the last year is a couple of, of downstream vendors who've been hacked. And so they get, uh, our members get notified by vendors that they never heard of. <laughs> um, and so if they have questions, um, we will keep that, um, when we are notified, um, all these services are following the law and notifying us when this happens. Uh, but we do not want to put that information up on our website because it actually aids the bad guys. Um, but we have that information available internally, so if someone receives a letter and they call into member services, we can validate that that was a legit letter that they received. Um, so that's what we are standing up uh, over the next couple of weeks is, is just uh, information on the website. So if you want to know about uh, you know, how to access uh, information about a possible data breach, that guides you to it, and then we'll have that information internally available at HSS. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, our team, again, uh, led by the, uh, our contracts um, division as well as the um, city attorney's office, uh, did a very, very thorough job working with all of our health plans to be in full compliance with the what is called the gag clause prohibition att attestation. Um, this is a big deal. The, uh, the federal government passed what was called the Consolidated Appropriate Act, CAA, um, uh, commonly known as the No Surprises Act. Uh, and one of the um, very major um, uh, issues that was addressed in this was uh, the prohibition of any kind of a gag clause in these healthcare contracts, and it goes all the way down. So what we obtained is at high level uh, uh, attestations by the health plan saying that not only does their contract with us not have any gag clauses, but those they contract with as well do not have gag clauses. Can you just clarify for uh, general public what do we mean by gag clause? Um, it's any contractual term within an agreement uh, with a provider or network providers or entity offering access to a network of providers that directly or indirectly restrict the plan's ability to make specific data and information available to another party. 
In other words, you know, they can't say no when we ask for our data. We're giving, you know, our members give them our data when they use those services. And uh, past practice has been that um, that data is considered property of that entity, and this law changes that. And this is material to our actuarial work, claims uh, information that we get from the health plans and so forth, correct? Bears on that? Y yes, and it also makes it publicly available on some of the, there's, there's many other um, aspects of this law. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's the transparency issue that we've all been concerned about for a long time, and this, this is one major part of this bill that um, makes the health data more transparent. Thank you. I'm just doing this, uh, having this little colloquy here, because sometimes when I come back and look at our proceedings, we're using sort of what I call inside, inside. Uh, the park or baseball language, and we kind of just go let it pass. And so with something of this magnitude, I thought it would be useful, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, Abby, uh, by doing that, but thank you for the yeah. clarification. I will say that I... Um, you, we have our guest, Chris Sears, here today, who's an expert in health benefit, and I ran this uh, language by him that had been created, I think, by Aon uh, for this report and asked if he felt there was anything that need, edit, edits needed, and he felt it was written very smartly. So I think uh, thank you for the team for putting this together but because uh, it's a complex it is a complex law, but I, it, it's, it's moving in the right direction. Thank you. So um, I also just want to highlight the, because uh, this is a time of year when we have a lot of uh, holidays that are important to note the celebration of Martin Luther King, the Lunar New Year, uh, February's Black History Month. Um, there's just a, a lot of activities that we all have the opportunity to participate in, and Leticia very nicely put that together a summary of those events um, in, uh, in the report. So I encourage you to take a look at those. And I think that's all I got. Uh, are there other questions or comments from board members? Christian <clears throat> Follinsby. Yeah, I have a few uh, questions and a comment. Uh, one is we've got notification from the mayor's office that the ability of uh, HR to recruit and process new applicants uh, has improved. Um, has our department benefited from these improvements in terms of your own recruitment and um, and ability to hire since we've been, HSS has been quite understaffed. Yeah, absolutely. I would draw to your attention in the report in the operations uh, section of the report, the human resources, we have five positions that we're recruiting for. You remember how long that list used to be? Um, I also routinely now with the assistance of our uh, department personnel officer uh, publish in the report our turnover rate and our vacancy rate and they are much improved. Um, and so, um, yes, we're, we're, we're doing good. The city as a whole is doing uh, much better. Um, they have a long way to go. I just heard yesterday a report where um, the grand jury had reported, had been concerned about this, and I think the average time to hire was like nine months at the time. And now it's down to six. So it's got a ways, it's got ways to go, but just I'll tell you, it's not, not much better in the private sector. <laughs> when it gets, comes to licensed certified people, because there's so many hoops that you got to go through to get hired. 
but um, but it's definitely going in the right direction and I believe the Board of Supervisors and the mayor's office are all looking at at, at this not just from the budget point of view but also from uh, you know structurally are we um, set up in the optimal way to really um, uh, uh, pace the hiring process as quickly as as is possible yeah, I was I was impressed that the turnover rate actually dropped for HSS in the last year, which I think is also a tribute to you and your staff in terms of uh, the workplace um, um, sort of mood and morale uh, in these trying times. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's also, you know, I saw an article headline the other day that was, you know, we've gone from the, the great resignation to the great stay. Uh, people are settling into jobs now, and a lot of this is the recovery, uh, you know, period that we're in with the pandemic. Um, that and then I just want to down. make a comment, uh, maybe a question, most a comment about the advanced primary care initiative. Um, two th parts. One is that it's really about the dollars, um, and you know, Medicare has dropped reimbursement to um, to uh, physicians for so for the Medicare payments three over three percent as of January first, twenty twenty four, and. It, whereas that may not directly influence a lot of the um, you know, contracted physician groups, you know, who have their own contracts with, with vendors, um, those rates are often benchmarked um, for other um, reimbursements by other, um, by other health plans. And so it is really about the dollars. And in this era of, you know, continued inflation and labor costs rises and et cetera, et cetera, to see a drop in physician reimbursement doesn't seem to be a healthy trend. And I presume that this advanced primary care uh, initiative is trying to address that um, as, a, as a very high priority. Um, the other comment I would make is that I, pre I, was, I have been historically, when I was in practice, a big supporter of nurse practitioners um, as, uh, as providers. Um, and um, I had the privilege of actually supervising several of them. Um, and uh, the one th question that I would have or comment I'd have was to make sure that as you sort of alluded their expanded role um, potentially, um, particularly in not only in urban but also rural communities, um, one of the metrics that needs to be um, available is their ability to to um, contact and re get responses from their supervising uh, physician. Um, and just like you keep you know statistics on calls and drop calls and call wait times and all that, um, you know I was very proud that certainly in, when. I, when I was involved with nurse practitioners, both through San Francisco General but also through Kaiser, um, we were on site and available immediately. Um, I don't know that's always the case, and so I'm hoping that these metrics are being monitored so that nurse practitioners feel supported in these expanded roles and that uh, patients also feel supported um, in, uh, in the use of uh, you know, additional licensed um, healthcare professionals. Thank you, Commissioner Fallenzing, for those comments. Anything else uh, on the director's report? Any other comments, questions? Hearing none, we'll now have public comment on the director's report. Thank you, President Scott. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raised hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment and see if there are any callers in the public comment queue at this time.
We have one caller on the phone line. Caller, you have received a notice to unmute. And we welcome you, caller. Hello, this is uh, Fred Sanchez with Protector Benefits. Uh, it's really nice to see in the director's report trying to get clarification on the Sutter and uh, UCSF situation. Sutter being finalized is wonderful, and we're very hopeful uh, that UCSF will follow shortly with United Healthcare. So thanks for the efforts on all parties. Thank you. Thank you, caller. There are no further callers in the public, call, uh, public comment queue at this time. With that, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now move on to item number seven. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number seven, SFHSS financial report as of November 30th, 2023. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSS chief financial officer. Good afternoon, uh. chief financial officer. We're delighted that you're back with us for the new year. I'm delighted to be back here. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, all right, so this month, uh, I'll expand a little bit on, on the higher claim, the question that uh, Commissioner Fonsby raised last, um, uh, at the last meeting. Um, and other than that, I think the numbers are fairly consistent. Uh, we do expect the trust to uh, balances to decline because we received cash uh, last year related to our settlement, as well as the stabilization reduces the trust balance. Uh, so we, uh, so for those reasons, the trust balance will decline by about 11.3 million by the end of the year. Uh, and as far as claims are concerned, uh, what I mentioned last time is the medical claims uh, are higher offset by lower dental claims. And the medical claims are higher um, uh, by about 7% for a couple of reasons. Uh, for uh, the main reason is in the flex funded plans in this year, we're seeing pharmacy costs go up by uh, 19%. And so if you remember last year, the increase in claims was related to high cost hospital claims. So the good news is that we haven't seen those, um, at least for the first six months. And I'm sorry for smiling, but it's, just, um, it's a cynic in me. But it's, it's possible that high-cost claims could come up at any time. But then so far, we have not seen, even through December, I haven't seen those. Uh, the medical claims are rising. And the medical claim, and, um, the pharmacy claims are, are higher due to uh, specialty drugs. So we're not really seeing a higher frequency of prescription. We're just the drugs are more expensive. Um, and then for the dental claims, um, they are, the utilization is running about 5% lower um, than last year. I think la uh, the same time last year was about flat. Um, so we do um, need to encourage people to see their dentists. I guess people are just not seeing their dentists um, and getting the right preventive care. The um, um, yeah the interest income numbers three million possibly higher uh, for the year. Um, the sustainability trust we are planning to be at budget even though we're substantially ahead of plan on on the sustainability fund, and in the general fund um, we had committed to mid-year savings of about two hundred twenty thousand dollars to the mayor's office uh, by not filling certain positions and. Uh, we are projecting to come in fairly close to that, that we would be about 200 to 300,000 below uh, the budget. Uh, in, and then lastly, um, on the audit, uh, we saw the presentation in November, and we have an ongoing plan to um, do the uh, health plan audits. 
Are there questions of the Chief Financial Officer? Uh, Collins, me. Thank you again Comment. very much for looking, delving in a little bit more to the rise in medical claims. And I think it just reiterates the board's position over and over again. I know that we, I think we, I certainly sound like a broken record that prevention um, is, and, and uh, the use of vaccines and early um, intervention for conditions, um, you know, should help reduce the risk for the need for these very highly and very expensive specialty drugs if diseases such as cancer and heart disease, et cetera, can be uh, found at um, an earlier stage, um, necessitating improvements not only to the health plan but also to the member uh, who uh, can avoid some of these um, medicines with a lot of side effects, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you again for reiterating that once again, supporting that position once again. Yeah. Okay. Comments? Hearing no further comment from the board, we'll now take public comment on this item. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFF TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment and no one has approached the podium. Our moderator will let us know if there are any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. One caller has specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. I will indicate when there are no more callers in the queue and you will hear a brief silence as we transition between callers. Welcome caller. Caller, you've been unmuted. You're welcome to speak for public comment at this time. I'll mute the caller. Does not seem like there's a public comment coming through. Moderator, will you let us know if there are any other callers in the public comment queue at this time? Board Secretary, there are no other callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now move on to item number uh, seven or number eight, excuse me. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number eight, Mayor's budget instructions for the SFHSS general fund budget for fiscal year 2024 to 2025 and fiscal year 2025 to 2026. This is a discussion item presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSS chief financial officer. It continues to come around in circles uh, over and over again, this process. We just finished the budget, didn't we, last fall or July or something like that, yeah, starting uh, again? Yeah, and it's going to go on for a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> Please go right ahead. Um, yeah, so this is... Um, um, Okay, so, we, so for our uh, budget, we seek public uh, input twice. So today is one of those, and then in the week of February 5th is when we seek the second input. Uh, so today we're just sharing the, gen the overview of the budget uh, and all, um, our budget, as well as the uh, instruction we received from the mayor's office. Um, so there's three pieces uh, that affect the uh, city's budget. Uh, that relate to the work that we do. Uh, so the first is the health benefit trust. That is the largest item. Uh, the net employer, uh, the net 
uh, aggregate plan costs 850 million. If you include the other entities we support, it's over a billion dollars. And um, that, you know, and the work that goes on there for that is, is on the calendar year, and it's uh, the RFPs and negotiation, the plan design, um, stuff we do all year. Uh, the second piece is the general fund budget. Uh, that's about 13.9 million for HSB. Uh, we have been asked to do a target, uh, to, uh, uh, we have a target reduction of 10%, uh, $430,000 uh, is our number, as well as a submission of a contingency plan of 5%, or half of that, an additional 5%. Uh, we, the mid-year cuts that we had um, uh, agreed to the 228 count towards uh, that number, so we don't, um, so the 10% is inclusive of that. Uh, the, um, what we may find as we identify areas in which we can reduce those expenses in the general fund is to reevaluate what goes into the trust and, and, and uh, we may um, come back to you and, and relook at the assessment and come back to your recommendation to look at the uh, trust fund assessment. Uh, so the last piece here is the, um, uh, the healthcare sustainability fund, the trust fund. Um, and our planned expenditures have typically been about three and a half million. Uh, the annual revenues on that trust are about uh, two and a half million based on the $3 PMPM. And each dollar um, uh, has an impact of about $800,000. Um, Okay. <clears throat> um, so the, the general compass we use and the context we use for our budget is really based on the strategic plan. So there's more discussions about the strate strategic plan to, to come at this meeting. Uh, so I'll just kind of skip through that. The city's budget um, uh, is projecting a growing deficit. Um, you know, it, it, there is, uh, there is pressure on revenue, but an absolute dollars revenue is growing, so we're at least not facing a situation uh, like the state is where the revenue actually is declining. Uh, the challenge for the city really is to um, manage expenses to the low growth uh, rate in revenues, and that's really what's causing the deficit. Um, and then the reason, so this, so this page describes um, uh, the weak or the weakness in the revenues for the city, uh, mainly driven by um, the pandemic, the vacancy rates, and the, and the slowdown of the economy. Uh, and then the next page talks about the approach on expenses. Um, uh, so there is, uh, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, target for a 10% reduction for all departments. The direction really is to use vacancies uh, to achieve that. Um, and then to kind of continue to manage expenses closer to CPI. Okay. Uh, lastly, the budget calendar, as I mentioned, two opportunities for public comment today is one, February 5th would be this, uh, this next one, and then we submit uh, our budget uh, in February to the mayor, and the Board of Supervisors would approve it in uh, June. Um, Ashley. Put this on there too. So happy to um, answer any questions on the budget or um, uh, get input on the budget. Well, it's a double-edged sword, uh, I believe, that we're uh, playing with here, and I recognize we don't have to be maybe that concerned, but we are, I am, when we say we're using vacancy rates as a way of trying to 
get at uh, these reductions. Uh, yet at the same time, we need the staff in order to support our mission and service our, our members. So uh, I guess I, I, I at one point would want to know if indeed we filled all of our vacancies in a particular uh, budget year, what else would we do uh, to meet uh, reduction targets or guidance from the mayor's office? When we've had, I believe, and I'm looking at our actuary who's sitting in the audience, I think we uh, had uh, premium benefit reductions of about 15 or $14 million in the past year, if I'm not mistaken. So that global number that you talk about, the accumulated cost of $844 million uh, to the city was impacted by those reductions as well. And I know we make that argument when we go to the budget committee and the board of supervisors so i'm just saying that i hear yes we're uh, largely going to try to achieve our targets for reductions that have been given to us as guidance through vacancies but we also know that we could get into some string of luck to fill all of these these positions at one time and we might be facing something else in terms of cost reductions do we have a plan b That's a long way around to get to that point. <laughs> um, if, I, if I may, yes. um, I understand uh, that the controller's office is going to be asking, or maybe it's the board, um, is going to be asking all departments for hiring plans uh, so that some of these things can be anticipated and thought about uh, early on, because otherwise it's, it's kind of a lot, lottery game, you know, yes. of who may choose to leave their job for whatever reason. That's the position that gets locked down. So um, I, I think that that's a very forward-thinking way of managing the business, and, and um, we'll, we look forward to being able to do that uh, along with all our other departments. But, you know, it's the position control. I mean, that's the major part of any budget, right, right. Is, is how you manage those salaries. And so that's, that's really... A, um, a big challenge and we're we're fortunate at least in this fiscal year that we're going into this because uh, we've put so much uh, effort into recruitment and, and retention and hiring as have many other departments with the support of DHR uh, we've really come a long way so at least we're starting at a, a better place you're right um, but having the hiring plan, um, the, the intent is is to allow that request to fill process when you have a vacant position and you need to fill it, uh, have it almost, almost uh, my word's not theirs, pre-approved mm -hmm. um, so that you don't have to go down this fight every single time. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. I think people are really thoughtful about how revisions can be made that would, you know, respect the fact that the money's, like, not there or very tight and work has to get done and how do we how do we do that and avoid any kind of you know the l word i won't even say it out loud right. um you know all, all those problems that that can occur if you don't have a systematic way of managing all right thank you are there other board comments commissioner follins me uh, well just to make sure i'm clear the instructions from the from the mayor's office on the general fund is it the same percentage across all you know commission departments is the 10 percent it, it doesn't take into account the mission or roles the departments play. Is it 10% across the board? It is 10% for um, 
That's what I understand. Is ten. Okay. Okay. Because I mean, I know that every you know department and, and commission over, you know, feels strongly about their own mission and all that. But you know, I want to just remind ourselves and the public that that we are providing health care to San Francisco employees and retirees as you know in various you know both city college and and um, the city and county of San Francisco and the school district and the court system, and that's slightly different than, than other kinds of programs. And so um, I hope that you know, that's taken into account when the final budget is finally uh, reviewed um, through the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor's Office. I guess the, in this question you might not be able to answer, but the governor yesterday released a, a proposal for how to deal with the state's um, uh, deficit um, that is a cursory sort of review of the news articles. I couldn't find anything that directly affected um, health care <laughs> through the government of city of San Francisco. But could you foresee the, how that might impact this uh, general fund number? Are we liable to see, you know, some leniency or more draconian, you know, recommendations or what? So the yeah so what I read in the paper this morning is, is yeah. it's a twenty million dollar target twenty billion dollar target yeah paid. Um, um, even so some of that so the deficit is largest like twice yeah and um, so the so the spending cuts are are could be much worse yeah because <laughs> thinking uh, but we're not it's too early for us to know if that would have. Um, it would cascade down. But I couldn't see the, his either deferment of costs or cu proposed cuts in terms of some environmental issues and some other issues sort of directly dealt with the issues that we deal with uh, in this department. So I didn't know how the city views this as well. Uh, so what? Yeah. It's across the board 10% regardless of the, you know, category. Yeah, so what I read was that the, um, the expansion of uh, Medi-Cal yeah. um, was a focus. Yeah. Um, and so that doesn't directly impact what HSB. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Are there other comments or questions from commissioners? Commissioner Savansky. Thank you. Um, I'd like to um, support what Commissioner Follinsby said, but also, um, you know, we seem to go through this almost every budget cycle where there's there's directions given across the board um, but there are some departments that have more unique responsibilities um, and sometimes that makes it impossible to reach that so that I guess we're in a constant negotiations with regard to um, maybe we can't meet that 10 percent and here's why and um, as Commissioner Follinsby said we're dealing with direct services. Um, we have an, an ever-growing population. We have an ongoing population of both active employees as well as retirees. Um, and I think that puts us in a unique situation. And I think sometimes we're going to have to take a look at the reality that those kinds of across-the-board cuts just aren't feasible. Um, maybe we can delay in hiring every now and then and add to some of the salary savings that goes toward that. But I think one has to realize the nature of the department and the nature of the services we have to provide and we have to fight for that. So um, I appreciate what you do. I know it's not easy. Um, that puts you on the hot seat a lot. Um, but I'm, I thank you for your tenacity and 
your support and um, hope that we can, um, through our director and through your, your work, um, maintain as high, um, as, as high a funding as we need to to make sure that we meet all of our obligations for all of our members because our members are, are our total focus. It's not the general public. All right. thank so you. thank you. Keep fighting. Thank you. Other comments, questions? If not, we'll have public comment on this item. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment. And we have three callers on the phone line. One caller has raised their hand. Caller, you'll see an indication to unmute. And welcome, caller. Yes, this is Fred Sanchez again from Protect Our Benefits. Uh, I think the commissioners have got it right on. You know, when these budget cuts take place, there's things like public safety that are so essential. They try to make room for them. But as far as we're concerned, health service is right there with any public safety because when you need to see a doctor, you need to see them now. And it's like the most critical department. It's our really focus from here on out for protect our benefits. So if you can somehow identify various positions that, hey, it will delay uh, service to our members, uh, that's what we're uh, very concerned about. So I know you know your mission, but I cannot emphasize enough how we get these phone calls all the time where I can't see my doctor for a month and uh, it's blamed on the p pandemic and doctors, but whatever you can do to try to identify positions that just cannot be cut because it just adds to the already, to all the delays worth our members getting uh, healthcare benefits. Thank you. Thank you, caller. There are three callers on the line. No callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. With that, public comment is now closed. Thank you very much, and we'll now- President Scott, can yeah. I just make one, one additional comment? Um, I'm sorry about that, but Which this is, is going to be a cheerleader comment. You know, the media is, continues to attack San Francisco. Um, and there are a few articles that sort of try to counteract that. But we, all of us in this room and within shouting distance, have a responsibility, I think, to actually point out that San Francisco is not such a bad place to visit. Um, and that if tourism has plateaued, we have a responsibility. To, I take public transportation to get here. And Muni was clean, and I w felt safe, and it was on time, and it's improved over the years. And so I would hope that all of us would sort of take a more positive attitude to our friends and colleagues to kind of reverse the plateau trend of tourism. And we might benefit as a health service board system to our members if that were the case. So enough said. Thank you on behalf of uh, San Francisco at large. <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner Follinsby. All right, if there are no further comments on this item, we'll now move to item number nine. Thank you, President Scott. 
Agenda item number nine, SFHSS Strategic Plan 2023 to 2025 Annual Progress Report to the Health Service Board. This is a discussion item, and we have several presenters today. Leticia Harris, SFHSS Senior Health Planner, Program Planner, and Racial Equity Lead. Iftigar Hussein, Chief Financial Officer. Carrie Bashirs, Wellbeing Manager. Ray Guillen, Chief Operations Officer. And Olga Stavinska Velasquez, Member Services Manager. We'll hand it over to the team. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Leticia Harris. I am a senior health program planner with SFHSS. On the screen now is a picture of the San Francisco Health Service System strategic plan that was approved back in November of 2022. At that time, the Health Service Board formally endorsed and approved the plan, its implementation, assessment, and evaluation. This presentation reflects our commitment to an annual report out on progress. Next slide, please. This slide provides a brief overview of our agenda today. I'll begin by revisiting our strategic plan framework and highlighting how equity is ingrained in the fabric of our mission, vision, values, and strategic goals. Then myself and my co-presenters will share high-level progress reporting for each strategic goal area. An important point to set the tone, we are reporting on a subset of active 2023 goal areas only, progress from the past year. We are not reporting on initiatives that have just begun in January of 2024 or those that have yet to begin in 2025. We want to reassure the board and members of the public that no initiatives are missing or being omitted. They'll simply be highlighted in presentations to come. Also included in your board packet is a PDF of the Strategic Business Initiative Report that has even more granular detail. As always, we aim to seek collaborative input from our board. I've been informed that we have a mere 20 minutes, 24 slides, and five presenters to pass the mic. So if it's possible for commissioners to field questions at the end, it would be most expeditious to keep the agenda on track. Next questions, please. Our mission, vision, and values were designed hand-in-hand -hand with our staff and are reflective of the voice of our membership. Our mission centers equitable, sustainable, and quality benefits. Our vision reflects engagement and personalized care. And our values are inclusion, compassion, operational excellence, collaboration, alignment, and accountability. Next slide, please. Goal one is achieved by applying a health equity lens to our customer service external approach and an equity lens to our internal workforce environment. Goal two is achieved through improvements to primary care and well-being services. Goal three, affordable and sustainable, is achieved through monitoring of funding and maintenance of board education. Goal four is achieved through easily accessible pathways to mental health and enhancements to retiree well-being. And goal five, optimizing service, is achieved through enhancements through member education, improvements to staff training, and implementation of quality assurance. As we implement the strategic plan for 2023 through 2025, we want to make it clear that equity is at the core of our approach. SFHSS will lead with equity to ensure that our members get access to care when they need it and where they need it, regardless of personal characteristics such as gender, ethnicity, geography, or socioeconomic status. And as we lead with equity, we're ensuring that we're in alignment with leading equity initiatives that are ingrained within the fabric of our mission, vision, values, and goals. This leads me to present highlights for goal area one, equity, a clarification that this is an annual report of progress on equity initiatives that are internal for staff. 
while future report outs will center health equity initiatives for our membership. Prior to 2024, the expectation was that every city and county department recruit divisional staff representatives to form internal equity working groups as a reflection of the mayor's mandate. The Office of Racial Equity has decided to kick off collective racial equity groups citywide with a fresh and more collective and collaborative approach. These peer learning cohorts, also known as PLCs, will be organized into four pipelines depending on departmental equity initiatives. SFHSS has chosen to participate in the culture cohort. We're sharing and reflecting on practices we've tried to create belonging and safety, supporting affinity spaces, engaging with our staff, receiving employee feedback, as it close mostly relates to our strategy. Next slide, please. Thank you. I'm also pleased to report that the Office of Racial Equity has approved SFHSS's request to participate in a suite of equity trainings sponsored by a contract with Be The Change Consulting. These experiential sessions are intended to give supervisory and non-supervisory leaders the opportunity to deepen their knowledge. 11 representatives from six SFHSS divisions will attend 10 hours of training each in commitment with our alignment. Training topics include developing a culture of belonging and facilitation as a practice for equity, among others. At this time, I'd like to pass the mic to Iftikhar Hussein, Chief Financial Officer, to cover primary care practice and affordable sustainable. Um, thank you, Leticia. So um, the advanced primary care, I think um, uh, Commissioner Fonsby kind of covered it. The goal there is to provide the right care at the right time. And uh, ideally, by providing the right care, you um, improve the health of uh, the member and uh, possibly prevent uh, chronic care, uh, the need for chronic care, uh, as uh, those problems are addressed early. So we are working with uh, Blue Shield on a uh, pilot project for advanced primary care. The idea is to take uh, uh, some clinics in the Brown and Total Medical Group and um, uh, conduct that pilot and evaluate results in, um, in, in June. And the targets that we have set, the measurement criteria, is, um, is one we've done in collaboration with uh, PBGH. Uh, and we have other partners who are participating with us. Um, uh, um, uh, and we're working with Covered California and um, CalPERS trying to get them. They, they have also expressed a lot of interest in this project. So that alignment kind of brings us leverage to work with uh, the medical groups and the health plans uh, to promote advanced primary care. Okay. Um, the, oh, can I move on to the next? Okay. So I'll cover the next subject of um, the, um, uh, our strategic mission of uh, affordable and sustainable primary care. If we um, go to the next graph, um, there's a three lines on here. The darker line is our rate of increase in health costs. And the uh, blue line is the 10 county average. Uh, and the, uh, the green line uh, you see here is the San Francisco Bay Area CPI. And so a couple of things to note as, as context is that usually healthcare inflation, as evidenced by the black line and the blue line, is higher than CPI. Uh, and the other thing to note also is that the healthcare inflation often lags uh, the CPI. So when you have a wave like we did in 2023, you can see the large increase we saw in the uh, in healthcare rates for HSS 
of 10.3% uh, hitting in 2024 for the 2024 plan year. Um, so our, you know, the good news is is that you see the inflation has subsided. Um, uh, the CPI numbers are coming down, and even though I think December was higher than January, it's still in the 3% range, uh, so it is favorable. Um, we are, uh, we also have some help from the state going forward, uh, where the state, uh, through Abby's efforts with on the advisory committee for uh, HGI, uh is uh, trying to set targets for rate increases for health plans around um, uh, three to four percent um, to kind of bring some uh, moderation in those rates. Uh, we're also, I think, we, I think the focus on primary care to get the right care early yet to avoid the more complex care, which is where all the cost is, the hospitalizations, um, is um, would be one way to reduce that uh, trend going forward. And lastly, also I mentioned, you know, we mentioned pharmacy earlier. Uh, Blue Shield is uh, has done an entire restructure of their pharmacy delivery, the PBM structure, um, bringing in uh, lower cost players. Um, and that would be effective in 2025, uh, where they'll be looking at their pharmacy uh, delivery mechanism, uh, and that's expected to produce some savings. Um, so those are some things on the horizon we're doing to kind of bring uh, the cost back down. Okay. Uh, I want to hand this off to who's next? Let's see. Oh, mental health, Kerry. Um, to Kerry Bashir to talk about wellness. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Carrie Bashirs. I'm the well-being manager with San Francisco Health Service System. So as you know, we've really elevated mental health. And this isn't something that I would say is new to us. Um, it's been a priority for HSS for a number of years and really has just been highlighted since the pandemic. And it's not only just shed light on the increase in need for services, but it's really also started to unveil the stigma around mental health. And so early on in the pandemic, two of the, the big services that we brought forward to help support our members was to expand our EAP service by bringing on a third-party vendor. Additionally, we also launched a wellness app for our first responders, and two of which those we continue to provide today. And we also recognize that it is now more than ever important to continue to focus on assisting our members to help navigate their mental health, their, their mental health resources, because there's a lot and it's very challenging for them to oftentimes find what the right service is, the right resource based on where they're at in that mental health continuum. And in order to do so, we're really looking to identify where we might need to fill some of the gaps, provide more resources, um, but also find where our strengths are. And in doing so, we're engaging our vendor and city partners to identify some best practice resources for our membership in accessing and utilizing and addressing mental health, well-being, and their clinical needs. And through these collaborations, we can identify these strengths and these gaps and help to improve the well-being and clinical care delivery system and services for our employees and their families. During this process, we've challenged ourselves to build equitable and accessible pathways using what we are calling a no-wrong-door philosophy. Go ahead, next slide. One of the first ways that we've done this through our for, through a goal four was providing a mental health vendor summit or what we called a, a mental health forum. Um, this initiative really did a lot, help to align some of these clear pathways, how people are navigating, where they're not able to navigate the mental health system um, and the well-being resources that we provide. This was 
a vendor summit that took place on December 6th of 2022. Next slide. You all would have received the full report uh, that was in follow-up of the forum that was uh, brought back a couple of years ago. And there's a lot of more details that would have been provided in that report than what was presented to you last year in follow-up to the forum. Our big focus is to collaborate with DHR, some of our departmental leads, our health plans vendor partners to really identify what are some key recommendations that we want to bring forward. And some of the big, th what I call the big three that we're really focusing on is communication, assessment, and training. And our next steps will be to develop to develop project plans and timelines for each of these. Go ahead, next slide. Also during the pandemic, we felt the need to further educate our members and lead them to resources, which led to the launch of the Mental Health Awareness Campaign, which also aligns with the national campaign every year in May. Our goal is to drive engagement to these resources and the services, and we look to increase that engagement each year. So in 2023, our goal was to increase this engagement to these services by 5%. There's five areas that we look at and which I'll cover in, a, um, in the next slide. But one thing I wanna highlight in that big blue box is we're very excited to note that we didn't just exceed the 5%, we achieved an increase in 19.2%. So that's a, a huge milestone for us. Go ahead, next slide. So what you see on the graph in front of you is the five key areas that I mentioned. We look at engagement in our trainings and workshops, our webinars and group exercise classes that are specifically targeting mindfulness, yoga, meditation, credible mind assessments, credible mind sessions, and our EAP services, specifically our cases. And what you'll see in front of you is that we did achieve an increase in four of those five engagement areas. And although we did see a slight drop in one area, we saw an increase that was significant in the other four. To, help us to exceed that 5% goal. Next slide. And last, with our continued focus on whole person health and well-being, we are focused and dedicated to providing education, programs, and tools to support our healthy aging population. In doing this, we recently compiled a, a panel of our retirees and some of our own HSS employees that participated in vendor demonstrations. These demonstrations were related to an RFI that we launched on some potential healthy aging programs. And then we also facilitated some focus groups with these panelists to really identify um, what they felt was necessary as you head into retirement around healthy aging. We are currently in the process of analyzing and reviewing the feedback from this group, which will assist us in determining the next steps. And with that, I will pass it back over to Ray Guillen. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Ray Guillen, Chief Operating Officer for HSS. Goal Area 5 is focused on HSS operations, which includes the divisions of member services, communications, and enterprise systems and analytics. The overarching aim in this area is to optimize the services we provide to our members in order to improve customer and stakeholder satisfaction. The three operation divisions uh, serve as the connections between our members and their health plans. Whether our members connect with us by phone, by coming into our office, or by getting information from our website, it is vital that they receive both accurate information and timely support. 
To achieve this, we have set a goal to develop and document standard operating procedures that will empower our call center staff to deliver consistent support to our members and also help staff to process member benefit transactions on a timely basis. Other operation goals center around gauging our members' opinions on the quality of the service we provide, utilizing the most appropriate communication channels or messaging, standardizing customer service training and implementing quality assurance reviews, using performance-based measurement approaches to eliminate inefficient systems, and automating processes as much as possible. Now I'd like to introduce Olga Stavinskaya Velasquez, our member services manager, who will review our standard operating procedures initiative further. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioner, uh, President Scott, Commissioners. My name is Olga Stavinskaya Velasquez, operations manager, health service system. The first step in accomplishing our goal in service optimization through establishing standard operating procedures was to hire a dedicated senior benefits analyst, Rafael Calvin Hudson. Rafael, in her first step in her role, identified and prioritized work streams that are completed by the member services division. She then established the process and <clears throat> excuse me, the work plan for the documentation of that standard operating procedure. So I, know is, uh, I want to note that each standard operating procedure that we will be evaluating will not be a simple documentation of the steps necessary, but we'll be focusing on um, incorporating multiple measures which focus on process improvement, staff training, and quality assurance. As an example, we have completed two processes following this formula already. First, in our delinquency process, that is the process where we send out letters to members who are delayed in paying their premiums. We have reduced our processing from two weeks to three days, from five staff to two staff. Um, this has not increased the number of calls member services has received regarding these letters that are sent out to members. So what we have realized is a time savings without a negative implication to our members. The second process is our retiree application process that has gone through this evaluation. Uh, we all know that retirees transitioning from active, uh, active uh, coverage to retiree coverage have to go through multiple steps in order to enroll. What we have done is look at the retiree application process and significantly simplify both the members, both the process on the members end and the process on our processing end. Our next two slides are a high-level um, review or high-level example of the changes that we have incorporated and the simplifications that the process has gone through. And because our documentation of the standard operating procedure includes an analysis uh, of what we're doing well and the areas where we can improve, we were able to incorporate both the challenges that our staff have identified from the member's perspective and efficiencies in uh, improving our own process. Again, following this formula allows us to take a holistic approach to meeting our goal of service optimization through standard operating process documentation. Now I'll pass on the presentation back to Leticia for closing remarks. As we conclude, I'd like to share an exciting announcement about a critical investment that SFH has made in moving forward 
our momentum around our strategic plan implementation by enrolling in the Harvard Business School Strategy Execution course. I'd like to share some themes that are on the screen that amplify some of the lessons learned in this preliminary year of strategic plan implementation. We're understanding the various tensions leadership faces as they implement strategy, and we're looking to build frameworks for managing those tensions effectively. We're thinking about how to optimize the design of key jobs to align them to strategy so that everyone understands their work and their role. We want to apply techniques to spur high performance and creativity among employees and to live our core values. We aim to create performance systems that account for all dimensions of strategy execution while conserving scarce resources and time. We're identifying common business risks and how to mitigate them. And lastly, we're applying techniques to help our business innovate and adapt to change while maintaining clear focus on necessary controls within our sphere of influence. To end, I'd like to share a quote from Robert Simmons, Harvard professor and facilitator of that course. All of us have to recognize that today's strategy will not work tomorrow. To remain relevant, you can't focus only on implementing the strategies that you've planned for. SFHSS's strategy is evolving as a reflection of what we've learned over the past year. And we hope this presentation is reflective of that. Thank you for your time. And I'll invite the panel of presenters to be on deck for any questions that you might have. Thank you very much, Leticia, and to the other team members who spoke during the course of this presentation. It's very comprehensive and very thorough. And I'll ask if there are commissioner comments or questions at this time on any aspect of the presentation. If, if, if I may, just very briefly, uh, Mr. Mr. President, just a, a compliment uh, to you uh, and the team, the rest of the presenters, uh, your leadership, Abby, and the rest of the team is, is very clear. Um, what is clear based off of some of the themes in today's meeting, we're operating in a scarce environment and focusing uh, high level uh, the various divisions of the department, ways to create efficiencies and, and optimize the service we provide is, is, is really how we meet the needs of our members. So uh, more than anything else, uh, my compliments and encouragement and, and thank you for the presentation. Thank you all. Other comments, questions, Commissioner Fallon. Yeah, I would like to reiterate that as well. And you know, even though we you know, we focused on five sort of separate areas of the strategic plan, it's quite clear how they overlap. And the presentation adds credence to the fact that you are all communicating with each other and understand the overlap um, and are integrating that uh, in terms of your prioritization for projects of improvement, um, et cetera. So I applaud the progress you've made in each of these areas and your ability to prioritize and, and really focus again on member um, services. I just had one comment to make about uh, under the um, goal two about advanced primary care in my chart. Uh, it focused on secure messaging, um, I think in the, in the slide, which is just one part of my chart secure, you know, is, is secure messaging. Um, and so that takes a certain amount of accountability um, for each health plan um, to make sure that the secure messages don't go into cyberspace, they get addressed, and that there is improvement in responses to the secure uh, messaging. I know that my own healthcare provider, there's definitely been an improvement. I don't necessarily have to wait for my primary care provider to read and respond that it, they've responded actually fairly quickly by someone else who can direct me to the right direction. And so um, my secure messaging in my chart is only one part of the picture. And I'm hoping that as we look at access 
and availability of services since I think every neighborhood that I visit in San Francisco has multiple urgent care sites. Um, and my concern has always been how those integrate with different health plan vendors. Some of them, they advertise who's sponsoring it. Um, Kaiser doesn't seem to have any. Um, but even within Kaiser, I will say from my own anecdotal experience, that having access to the Kaiser records doesn't necessarily guarantee that the people, the providers who have access are looking at it. Uh, and so we need accountability at every stage. And that includes the mental health concerns, it includes every aspect of our strategic plan. Um, it's not just secure messaging, it's really, it's really the, 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 these are utilized and, um, and, and there's accountability. So I thank you very much for highlighting that, but also I want to make sure it's expanded. Yeah, so, that, so, so I'll, I'll just add to that. So, so the, the whole idea of doing a pilot and uh, selecting clinics that have the willingness and the capability uh, to do exactly just what you said, that they have the structure uh, for secure messaging, they have the structure <coughs> for extending the primary care functions, um, uh, is, is part of that first pilot. So. I'd just like to point out that uh, historically the VA system, which put in a medical uh, electronic medical record many years ago, offered to give that away free to any health plan system vendor in the country um, for free, hoping to actually improve the communication between ca the care to the population they serve and, um, and where they might be getting care. Nobody took them up on it, um, in part because the system was apparently not robust enough. Um, but anyway, so just having a system doesn't necessarily guarantee uh, the transparency and the accessibility that we're all looking for. Thank you. Other comments or questions? Just a quick comment to, um, to appreciate the, that this plan really reflects that you are taking um, seriously your role in uh, addressing members' needs and also your customers. I think that from the operations end to figuring out um, how to streamline certain processes to um, the well-being numbers, the impressive 19.2% increase, and also just your entire lens on, on equity. So I just want to commend all of you for your hard work. I have one question about the <coughs> problem-solving process. You took on two processes, retiree application and the delinquency rate. Uh, do you have, just at a high level, uh, a listing of what other areas you're going to begin to look at? Yes, absolutely. So the next area we're going to be looking at is going to be the new hire process. We, in prioritizing the standard operating procedures that we will tackle next, we looked at it from the perspective of a new member, a new employee starting with the city. And so wanting to improve, we, we will be looking at the new hire process, trying to make it easier for members and in, informative to members to ensure that they're applying within the 30 days. And then we'll be moving on to qualifying life events. Those are the, that and the retiree process are three biggest areas outside of open enrollment that we focus on. And then in between that, we will be focusing on the smaller pieces, the processes that touch a smaller population, but we're kind of prioritizing the larger groups, retirees being um, the, the, the one we focused on first, followed by new hires, and then across the board qualifying life events. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. very helpful directionally uh, for me to understand how you're approaching this, so thank you very much. Are there other questions from the board? Hearing none, we'll now take public comment on this item. 
Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move on to our remote public comment. And I can see that there are three callers on the phone line. No callers have raised their hand for this agenda item. I'll wait five more seconds to see if any callers want to participate in public comment for this agenda item. Zero callers have raised their hand for this agenda item. With that, public comment is now closed. Thank you very much. We're now going to enter a period of a 10-minute recess, uh, and then we'll come back and hopefully complete our agenda in a timely fashion. Thank you. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Thank you. We're ready to reconvene our board meeting. I'll ask the uh, board secretary to call the roll. Thank you, President Scott. Roll calls starting with President Scott. Present. Vice President Howe. Present. Commissioner Breslin will be returning shortly. All right. Commissioner Canning. Present. Supervisor Dorsey. Present. Commissioner Fallensby. Present. And Commissioner Zvansky. Present. We have a quorum and we'll proceed. Uh, with the agenda today, I want to make one uh, slight change so that we're kind of doing this all at one time. We have uh, next the presentations of rates and benefits calendar as a discussion item. Then we have an action item number 11 on the IBNR reserve, which is going to be number 11. And then I'm going to ask that we move up item 13, approving the order for the uh, board election. And then we'll take item 12, the fiduciary training. All right. So as we go through those, I'll call them accordingly for the record. So now we'll uh, proceed with item 10. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number 10, presentation of the 2024 rates and benefits calendar for the plan year 2025. 2025. Uh, and this is a discussion item. It's written on the agenda, but it's a discussion item and will be presented by SFHSS Executive Director Abby Ant. Uh, good afternoon again, Commissioners. And uh, yes, so we're kicking off our rates and benefits season. And uh, so the outline of all of the activities and uh, approval processes are uh, on the calendar. As you know, we update this every month. Um, and uh, so uh, we don't have any edits as um, as presented here today, it's pretty straightforward. Um, are there any, and I can entertain any. Uh, the one thing that I did want to point out, uh, once again, is that we do uh, a second meeting hold on your calendars throughout rates and benefits. Um, and then we release, We, if we're able to release the, the hold, we do it at the conclusion of the meeting. So we would be doing that today if we don't see any reason to hold uh, well, we don't have a second meeting in January, so we won't be doing it today. We'll be doing it in February. Um, and uh, given, I think the times that we have had to do it have been in either April, May, or June. So if, if you want to be a betting person, um, <laughs> those those are a little higher stakes those months. So. All right. Thank you thank for you. that clarification, Director. Are there any questions about the rates and benefits calendar? Uh, all of our the commissioners have gone through it at least once. Uh, I think we're okay. And are any questions? None. We'll now open this up for public comment. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue to speak. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, please click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. I'll move to our remote public comment. And we have two callers on the line. No callers have raised their hand at this moment. Callers, you can raise your hand now. We'll wait five more seconds for anyone who may want to enter the public comment queue at this time. 
No callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. With that, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now move to item number 11. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number 11, approve the June 30th, 2023 incurred but not reported IBNR reserve and contingency reserve amounts for self-funded and flex-funded health plans. This is an action item and will be presented my, by Mike Clark with Aon. Good afternoon, uh, Actuary Clark and Ann. Uh, as I came into the chamber today, I said that I wanted a New Year's present from both of them, that we would find that the premium uh, would be reduced this year by a total of 10% from every health plan. And I thought that's what Santa Claus had left me at, uh, on Christmas Day. They disabused me that there was no such gift. So we'll continue to go forward for the rest of the, the year with our benefits plan, starting with this process. Well, Mike Clark, hey, I'm playing the role of Grinch today with my double-digit reserve increase uh, right. recommendations <laughs> for you to approve. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mike. So, uh, yes, here to seek your approval uh, for the June 30th, 2023 incurred but not reported reserve and contingency reserve amounts for the self-funded and flex-funded plans. Uh, page two, just a reminder, uh, today we're going to focus on the first two of the overall three reserves uh, for the SFHSS self-funded flex-funded plans, uh, the incurred but not reported, and the contingency, both of which are as of the end of the prior fiscal year, uh, with the IBNR reserves also having gone through the scrutiny of NGO uh, during their audit process as they reported to you in November. And then later in the rates and benefit cycle, March, April timeframe, we'll present the stabilization uh, reserve recommendations for your approval. So as noted on the prior page, there are these three distinct health uh, reserve policies. And so that means the three distinct reserves on each self-funded and flex-funded uh, medical and prescription drug plan, as well as the active uh, dental plan, uh, PBL, as a self-funded plan. And these are held, uh, you can see the various plans that they're held, including the HMO and EPO plans, uh, flex-funded for the Blue Shield HMOs and the self-funded UHC EPOs, uh, the flex-funded HealthNet Canopy Care uh, HMO plan, the self-funded non-Medicare uh, PPO plan that is administered by Blue Shield for most and also by UHC for the split family members, and the self-funded dental PPO plan administered by Delta Dental. Uh, these policies on page four, you'll see the web link uh, to those policies uh, that were most recently reviewed and revised uh, just a year ago right now in January, 2023. Um, one thing of note in the contingency reserve policy, you will see that uh, we as actuaries actually measure at three different uh, what's called confidence levels. Uh, so think of that as a probability uh, that um, you'll be able to sustain within the, the framework of those contingency reserves. We've always used the 99th percentile, which uh, is the most conservative, uh, produces the most production for us of HSS, uh, but we also do measure at the 95th percentile, 97th percentile, and those are captured in our annual memos uh, that Ann produces for the chief financial officer. So on page five, uh, you'll see with the incurred but not reported reserves how each of the rows represents each of those uh, plans that I spoke of earlier. Uh, you can see the incurred but not reported reserve amounts, which 
essentially these cover uh, the payments that would be required for claims as of the particular measurement date, so services that have been delivered, but those amounts not yet known as of that measurement date. So you can see how the June 30th, 2023 recommendations compared to the June 30th, 2022, you know, they are influenced in part by change in headcount. So for instance, that is why even though the figures are small, the health net uh, reserve amount increases so significantly uh, because the population also increased significantly from 2022 to 2023. But for the most part, especially for the Blue Shield plans, it's driven by a combination of the higher claim amounts that we talked about all through last year's rates and benefits cycle uh, for the Blue Shield Access Plus plan, along with some slower claim processing speeds observed from the carriers in the 2023 measurement relative to prior years. And think of that as a function of their own staffing challenges uh, that the carriers are having with their um, staffs for claim payment um, servicing. And so the amount that I'll ask you to approve today uh, for June 30th, 2023 in total is the 38152248 um, reserve amount across all four uh, plan categories for the IBNR reserves. And then for contingency reserves, again, similar increases uh, again, health net, uh, mostly driven by headcount increase. Uh, the uh, flex-funded HMO plan for Blue Shield, uh, mostly a function of uh, what I spoke about earlier, just higher claims in Access Plus and the slower processing speeds. Uh, the amount that I'll ask you to approve today for the contingency reserves uh, is 28,550,534. Uh, just for comparison purposes, if we were using the 95th uh, percentile contingency, it would be right around 20 million in reserve. And if we were using 97th percent uh, contingency confidence level, it would be about 23 million in projected reserve. So again, that 99th uh, percentile use provides the greatest reserve protection uh, for SFHSS. So in conclusion, uh, it is recommended that the Health Service Board approve the incurred but not reported, uh, or IBNR, as well as contingency reserve amounts as of June 30th, 2023, as outlined in this material, uh, for the flex-funded and self-funded plans uh, that are listed. And the changes in contingency reserves will be a component of the December 31st, 2023 stabilization reserve calculations in early 2024. President Scott. Thank you very much uh, for the presentation. Are there questions or inquiries from the board? If not, I'm ready to entertain a motion. I would like to move <laughs> that we approve the recommendations of our actuary to, uh, to cover the four um, plan types in terms of the uh, incurred but not reported amount of 38 million $152,240 and the contingency reserve of $28,550,534. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded that we accept the actuary's recommendation as presented. Uh, are there other questions from the board? If not, we'll take uh, public comment on this item at this time. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. 
In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be pasted in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has uh, approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. For Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment. Thank you, moderator. With zero callers in the queue at this time, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now have a roll call vote. Roll call vote starting with President Scott. Aye. Vice President Howe? Aye. Commissioner Breslin? Aye. Commissioner Canning? Aye. Supervisor Dorsey? Aye. Commissioner Follinsby? Aye. And Commissioner Zvansky? Aye. Motion carry unanimously. Thank you again, Mike and Anne, no, thank for you. your work on this process and keeping us so well balanced yeah. as we go forward. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll now go to item 13. Item 13 in the agenda. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number 13. Um, we've moved up um, to move on to approve the resolution ordering the 2024 Health Service Board election for two seats expiring and authorizing staff to initiate and proceed with the election. This is an action item and will be introduced by Executive Director Abby Ant and I'll be presenting as Board Secretary. Thank you. I ask that this item be moved up so that we can then go to the uh, presentation on fiduciary training and board ed education and not have to come back and take action on it. So uh, it's a matter of uh, flow for the meeting. Yes, I spoke to this earlier during the director's report, so um, Holly will explain the details, but we have before you today the resolution um, ordering the Health Service Board election for two expiring term seats, uh, Commissioner Breslin and Commissioner Canning, and authorizing staff to initiate the process and proceed with the election. So Holly will is uh, has all the detail. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, Hello, commissioners. Um, so I have one slide today that reviews what you've received in your packet of materials. And there's 10 bullets here to really go over that overview. Um, the first is that the resolution you're considering is the order for the 2024 Health Service Board election for those two seats, member seats that are expiring, and that will authorize the staff to initiate and proceed with the election in May. Um, as the Health Service Board Secretary, I'll be the coordinator um, and the um, contact person for any members seeking information. Members who are eligible include the active and retired member employees who are enrolled in a health service plan and for qualifying surviving spouses or qualified surviving domestic partners of any active or retired employee. Those are the two can candidate qualifications. The nomination period will begin tomorrow, January 12th, and conclude on February 16th. For candidates who are interested, they can attend an orientation session on March 1st, which will be hosted here at City Hall. Um, the registrar, our department, SFHSS, and our city attorney will host that orientation, go over any notes about the Health Service Board, your responsibilities, any legal obligations, and the election timeline. And the election will take place on May 17th through May 
31st, that's a two-week period, um, and all active, retired, qualifying surviving spouses and qualifying domestic partners will be able to vote. They'll receive uh, a paper ballot that will be returned via mail um, for counting. Those counting votes will um, be overseen by the registrar, the, the, the Department of Elections, and they'll be counted June 1st through June 4th, often quite sooner than that four-day period. Um, they will report that back to our department. It'll be posted on the registrar's website, and the two new elected members will take their first seat at the regular Health Service Board meeting on June 14th. And as I said, any information can be directed toward me, the Health Service Board Secretary, through email or phone. And with that, are there any questions about the election process? Are there questions regarding the board election process? Uh, Mr. President, I, Commissioner Channing, would like to move or make a motion that we adopt the resolution uh, to order the uh, 2024 Health Service Board election process as presented. I should disqualify him from making this motion because <laughs> an active party in the might be a conflict, conflict of interest. Conflict potentially. Of interest yeah. But anyway, thank you. It's, it's been properly moved and seconded. Uh, so uh, we'll now have any further board comment on this item. Commissioner yeah, I just have a question about, yeah. you know, um, <clears throat> I, the packet we got actually talked a lot about how, you know, how do we, we could encourage uh, potential uh, candidates to consider and, and go and apply, and I'm, I'm, I think that the, um, you know, two retiring or not retiring, the two um, elected members who are up for re-election, you know, have a responsibility not in terms of deciding whether they're going to run again, but also to engender interest and enthusiasm uh, for the position. <laughs> so they might have some competition should they decide to be running again. <laughs> Because um, it's always good, but I also would like to know what the you know um, voter uh, response rate is in terms of the number of votes out of eligible people who can vote. What you know, how many people actually historically, when we've had previous elections in the last five years or ten years, what the response rate has been is a way that we can um, maybe encourage you know the process by also reminding people of the responsibility to vote for their uh, members. Thank you, President Fonsby, or um, Commissioner Fonsby. That's a great question um, and something we can look into to possibly report on in from the last elections. Um, in the director's report each month going forward, we'll be, we will share an update um, because I hear what you're saying, that how can we encourage members to represent themselves um, on this board um, and encourage people to nominate themselves or others. Um, so what we can do as well is there is a, a fact sheet for members who do want to, which was included in your packet, and consider how that can be distributed. Um, today is the public um, announcement, so hopefully we do get flooded with questions and information. Um, but it is something we can check into with registrar and city attorney if there's additional ways to um, encourage members. But um, we can report back next month on the last sure. election, Breslin. there wasn't any um, other nominee other than me, and nobody ran against me, and I think maybe the one before. So you don't really have to have an election then. Yes, yeah. Commissioner Breslin, you're um, recalling that when there is um, only one candidate who's um, submitted um, for the seat, the election is canceled and that seat is given to that candidate. So that's a potential for this year as well, for any seat um, during the election.
Are there other questions or comments? Hearing none, we will uh, take public comment on this item. <laughs> so thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. And our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. One caller has specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. I will indicate when there are no more callers in the queue and you will hear a brief silence as we transition between callers. Thank you, caller. Or thank you, moderator. I'll unmute the first caller. Welcome, caller. Yes, uh, this is uh, Fred Sanchez from Protect Our Benefits. Just uh, thought an item uh, you can consider whatever. I noticed that, you know, it opens the 12th and it closed February 16th, but then the orientation session is March 1st after nominations would be closed. Uh, I just wonder, uh, would that orientation be helpful if it was done prior to the close of nominations? Just a thought. Thank you. Thank you, caller. All right, with that, I'm now, we'll now have a roll call vote. Thank you, President Scott. To accept the resolution as presented. A roll call vote starting with President Scott. Aye. Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zvansky. Aye. Passes unanimously. And with that, we will now go to item 12. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number 12, board education, fiduciary training. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Chris Sears with Ice Miller Legal Counsel. We'd like to welcome you uh, for this training. Uh, I, my, if my memory serves, you did this with us the last time and it was via Zoom, if I recall correctly? That's right. All right, so this is your first time in person before the board. It is. Right. Um, and Welcome. I, thank you, and thank you all for uh, having me here. I, um, the Commissioner, you were the one to say that we should encourage people to come to San Francisco and visit, and I'm happy that I'm here and, and visiting, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll, be a, um, I'll be out there telling the world to come, so. Um, I'm Chris Sears. Um, uh, I'm a senior counsel with a law firm of Ice Miller. My offices are in Indianapolis, but we have offices uh, across the country. Um, <laughs> Commissioner Zvansky's. Sorry, I'm just envisioning snow and <laughs> bad weather. And it was snowing as I left, so I'm you happy. You picked a perfect day to be in San Francisco. I did. Thank you. Um, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I did do this training a few years ago. You know, this is, this is training that... Um, that's really honestly necessary, I think, every few years. Um, it takes us back to ground zero. It gets us grounded again in what our duties are um, and how we need to be thinking about the decisions that we're making on, on these 
on these boards. Um, because you have an awesome responsibility. Um, you've all referred to it several times during this meeting um, that you've got to care about the health care being provided to the, the employees and the retirees of the city and county of San Francisco. Um, and as someone said earlier, when you've got to see a doctor, you've got to see a doctor. And you've got to do it now. Um, and so you know, the decisions you're making are impacting lots of lives. Um, and as I said, it is an awesome responsibility. And you have to exercise the fiduciary duties that we're going to talk about today when you're making those decisions. And I don't want to talk down to you today as we're talking through this. So please you know, ask questions. I'm going to say a lot of things you already know. But sometimes it's helpful to be reminded of those things that we already know because they get pushed back. Um, so I want to bring them forward today. All right. Um, is there, you mean, is that a, yeah, I'll just do that if that's okay. Very good. Um, so um, I want to start out with, you know, what is a fiduciary? And so we use that word a lot, and we think it means certain things, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's what we want to sort of really clarify today. So, you know, a fiduciary, at the end of the day, is someone who has the authority to make discretionary decisions about a plan, or someone who has the a discretionary authority to invest assets that's going to pay for benefits, right? So it's what you do. Um, you know, I've sat here for the whole meeting, and, and this is exactly what you've been doing agenda item by agenda item. Um, it's also any person that's named in a plan document or a trust as a fiduciary. So you can really become a fiduciary right a couple of ways. Number one, you can just be deemed to be a fiduciary because you're named in a statute or a charter or a plan document. But the other fact is, is that you can make yourself a fiduciary by exercising discretion. So we're always really careful, particularly with um, private sector. I work with both private sector clients and governmental clients. Um, with private sector clients, but also, you know, sort of with the staff of, you know, HSS. Because if staff or an, someone in HR is, if they're making discretionary decisions, right, if they're deciding who's in and who's out, if they're deciding whether someone gets a benefit or doesn't get a benefit, and it's based on things that are other than in the plan document, right? If they're going sort of beyond the plan document, then they become a fiduciary themselves. So it's an operational definition, right? If you do things um, to, to interpret the documents, to interpret how the benefits work, you can become a fiduciary. Um, and so, you know, one has to be very careful about that. And so when I advise um, staff, whether it's HSS staff or whether it's an HR department in a private company, I'm very careful to tell them, stay within the confines of, of administering the plan the way it's written. Um, it's up to the fiduciaries to decide whether or not you veer off that. And, and a fiduciary has to have a really good reason to veer off of that. Um, so it's, you know, we, we're really careful about that because you can become a fiduciary just by your actions. So what are some things that fiduciaries typically do? Um, they appoint other planned fiduciaries. Um, so uh, appointing an investment manager. So if you have an investment manager that is managing the funds of the trust, that investment manager becomes a fiduciary. And appointing that fiduciary is a fiduciary responsibility. So you have the obligation then to monitor that, de that delegate, to make sure they're doing their job, um, and, to, and to pay attention to what they're charging you, for example. 
Um, delegating responsibilities to other fiduciaries, we sort of talked about that. De uh, selecting and monitoring trust investment vehicles. So if you're choosing how funds are invested, that's a fiduciary function because it's your job to take care and watch out over the, um, the, the investment of those assets because they're, they're entrusted to you, right? This is a high level of trust. Acquiring and disposing of plan assets, interpreting plan provisions, so, um, you know, this, we'll talk about this as we go along, but this comes up a lot like on appeals, for example. Um, I know appeals sometimes come to the board. And, you know, as the board is um, uh, determining those appeals, it's important for the board to, you know, look carefully at the plan provisions. And sometimes plan provisions are vague. Um, and that's when that discretion comes into play, right? Um, and so it's important um, when interpreting those plan provisions to do it sort of in a fiduciary capacity and to um, interpret those provisions in a way that's consistent with the way the plan ought to be operated and in a fair way uh, to everyone. And making decisions, um, we were sort of talking about this, like, uh, uh, you know, about adjudicating claims and appeals. So who are typical fiduciaries? Well, it's pretty clear you all are, um, just based on your roles and what you do. Um, but also, you know, so investment committee members, investment managers, um, administrative committee members, um, uh, investment advisors, and again, anybody else who performs uh, fiduciary responsibilities um, or those functions. So who's not a fiduciary? And this is, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this a little more because you get in this interesting dichotomy where sometimes you wear two hats. Sometimes things you do in those chairs are fiduciary functions, but sometimes they're not. So when you're making decisions about designing a plan, when you're making decisions about amending or terminating plans, you're actually not acting in a fiduciary capacity. When you're deciding whether a benefit ought to go into a plan or a benefit ought to be taken out of a plan, those are what we call settler decisions. Those are decisions made by you know, an entity that that is sponsoring a plan, that's designing the plan. Now, once you've made those decisions and you've decided what's going to be in the plan, then when you administer it and you implement those decisions, you're acting in a fiduciary capacity. So it's, and, and we're gonna talk about some examples of this a little later on because this line is not always clear. So sometimes, you know, you're acting in the, in the interest of the beneficiaries of the plan. But sometimes when you're making a settler decision, you're deciding what's in the plan, what benefits are we going to have or not have, those decisions aren't necessarily being made in the sole interest of the beneficiaries of the plan. Sometimes those decisions are being made because we have funding that we have or don't have. And sometimes those decisions are being made because um, of, of other employment-related issues. We need to recruit and retain employees in the city. And as a result of that, we need to increase benefits. Or we don't have money to pay benefits, so we need to increase co-pays or co-insurance. Um, and again, those are decisions that aren't fiduciary decisions. Now, once you've decided those things and they're part of the plan, then we have to administer them with the skill and duties of a fiduciary. And I've got some examples of these things because this is an area, and it's not just it's not just you, right? My firm has, um, you know, my firm has a plan, and so I, and I, as you might imagine, sit on our benefits committee. 
Um, and you know, we struggle with that all of the time. You know, we want to provide really good benefits to our employees, but sometimes we, we have to reduce something or we have to shift sometimes a benefit. We have to shift money to provide a benefit here and not over here. Um, and those aren't fiduciary decisions. But once we've done it, once we've made the decision, then we have to administer those benefits um, in a fiduciary manner. All right, so let's talk about what these duties are, what we need to be thinking about as we're administering plans and, and investing assets. So there are a number of, um, so the lawyer, right, I have to talk about the sources, the legal sources of these duties, and there are a number of them. First of all, we look at your charter, um, and we look at your board terms of reference. Then we're going to look at state law. Um, and then, you know, we sort of look at the common law. So the common law is um, sort of, sort of is the, the body of law that has developed over time, right? It's not statutory law. It's not a regulation. It's court-made law that has evolved over time. And then finally, um, you know, we'll, we look at our plan documents and our plan-related um, uh, plan documents and trust documents. And from those things, we start to understand what our fiduciary duties are. So let's just, and I'm not going to go through these next slides word by word, um, but I just wanted to have them in here as reference so you sort of get a sense, right? Your charter really sets you up as fiduciaries. When you look at what your duties are under the charter, there's, there's really no, there are no question about it, right? Because, um, you know, you administrate trust fund, and it's solely for the benefit of the active and retired members of the health service system and their covered dependents, right? That, that's classic fiduciary language, right? So it's, it's the exclusive benefit rule. You administer this solely for the benefit of those active <laughs> and retired members and, and their beneficiaries. Um, contributions to the fund. You have control of the administration and investment of those funds. Again, classic fiduciary um, activity. Um, you have an obligation to communicate um, under your charter to um, disseminate information to the members with regard to the plan benefits and the costs thereof. So communicating about benefits is a fiduciary function. Um, and we'll talk about, you know, an actual Supreme Court case where they talked about how communication is um, a fiduciary function and how you, ha you have a duty not to mislead um, plan members about what benefits are and what will be paid for and what won't be paid for. Um, in terms of your, your uh, terms of reference, the board terms of reference, um, again, just more examples. You have um, the obligation to administer the trust fund in accordance with the provisions of the city charter. You have control of the administration and investment of the trust fund. Um, you have to have a written investment policy statement. Um, you have to, you know, uh, ensure qualified parties are appointed to manage the assets. Again, all classic um, fiduciary uh, responsibilities. So then, you know, you sort of move to state law. And, and you sort of look at what, 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 what that says about fiduciary responsibilities. And it says that, you know, um, and you're not a public pension system, but we, again, we sort of look to other sources to sort of understand what fiduciary duties mean and what they are. But it says fiduciaries have to discharge their duties with respect to the system with the care, skill, and prudence and diligence under the circumstances then prevailing 
that a prudent person acting in a like capacity and familiar with these matters would use in the conduct of an enterprise of like character. You see these words here. You see these words in the Uniform Prudent Investor Act, as well as, and I'll talk about this law quite a bit, uh, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA. Now, you're a governmental plan, so you're not subject to ERISA. But every private sector plan in the country is subject to ERISA. And what ERISA is, it's a federal law, all-encompassing federal law that governs employee benefits for, for the private sector. It's passed in 1974. It was designed to create sort of a uniform federal law for employee benefits. But it has really specific fiduciary provisions in it. Right? So ERISA was passed because, um, you know, in the late 60s, late 50s, 60s, early 70s, there were a number of pension funds that were severely underfunded. And, you know, companies have made promises to people. They were mismanaging these, um, these trust funds, these pension funds. So ERISA was passed to create national standards and national fiduciary standards uh, for the running of employee benefit plans. <clears throat> Governmental plans um, were exempted from ERISA um, for federalism concerns, as you might imagine. But we look to it when we're advising governmental entities because, because it's a national law, there's an incredible body of law uh, talking about fiduciary responsibilities under ERISA. So when there are gaps in state law or there are gaps in your charter, we look to ERISA to, to guide us in terms of what can you do? What can you not do? How should you be proceeding? All right. I'll skip probably through some of these slides. I just I wanted to include them, some of them for um, information and reference. But if I skip one, it doesn't mean it's not important. It means I'm watching my time. So what are the duties? So we've talked about, you know, so what is a fiduciary? What are the sources of law we look to to figure out what a fiduciary should do? And now we're going to talk about what those things are. What are the duties of a fiduciary? So they sort of fall under three large um, categories, sort of the duty of loyalty, the duty of prudence, and the duty to follow plan documents. And these, they're sort of subsets under each of these things. So under the duty of loyalty, we have the duty to act um, impartially among differing interests, the duty to act solely in the interests of participants and beneficiaries. The duty to act for the exclusive purposes of benefits, of providing benefits, so the exclusive benefit rule that we chatted about a second ago. And the duty to act independently and without conflicts of interest. So talking about each of those just, just a little bit, um, first, duty of independence. Fiduciary has the duty to act in the interest of the members and beneficiaries as if there were no competing interests to protect. So Commissioner Zvansky said something earlier that I wrote down because um, I thought it just sort of summarizes this slide very well. She said, members, um, members are our total focus, not the general public. And, and that really goes to this you know, sort of duty of independence that we are going to be serving our members as if there were no competing interests. Now, it means obviously you can't act for your own personal interest. It means if we have friends who are investment managers, right, we can't act for them. Um, if we have friends who are third-party administrators, we can't sort of act for them, right? We have to look at 
all of those um, entities without conflicts of interest. Um, and this requires an undivided loyalty to participants and beneficiaries. But this is the place where I want to talk a little bit again about that difference between settler activities and fiduciary obligations. Um, because you absolutely do have this obligation of undivided loyalty, um, that members are your total focus. But there are also the, there's also this function of being a settler. Um, and again, settler functions include things like establishing the plan, amending the plan, terminating the plan, taking actions for legitimate business purposes. Whereas fiduciary functions right, are implementing the settler's plan designs, administering the plan itself, making discretionary decisions, and investing plan funds. So, you know, the Supreme Court, um, this was a, a U.S. Supreme Court case. So this is an ERISA case, right? So it's not binding on us, but we sort of look to it as guidance. Supreme Court said that, you know, employers can be ERISA fiduciaries and still take actions to the disadvantage of employee beneficiaries when they act as employers. Now, you're not an employer, but you sort of see the analogy here. So, for example, when they fire a beneficiary for reasons unrelated to the unrelated to the plan, or even as plan sponsors when they're modifying the terms of the plan as allowed by ERISA to provide less generous benefits. So that quote sort of recognizes, again, two hats. Um, and sometimes we have to take actions in designing plans that, that may disadvantage people, may advantage other people. Um, but we do that with the settler hat on, and we don't have that fiduciary hat on where we have to have undivided loyalty to beneficiaries because, again, sometimes we have to take other things into consideration in designing the benefits. Um, I, and I, I may skip through a, a couple of these slides, but, you know, again, here's, here's an example where, and this is in the Ninth Circuit. So um, you all sit in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for federal, for federal court purposes. Um, and interestingly, the Ninth Circuit of Court of Appeals has a reputation of being more liberal than the other circuit courts of appeals. So this is kind of an interesting case to me because it came out a little differently than one might expect. So the trial court here held that a plan trustee breached a fiduciary duty when they put an employee on administrative leave um, allegedly to retaliate against that employee because the employee was cooperating with the Department of Labor in an investigation. And so the employer put them on leave. Um, and the court said, you breached a fiduciary duty when you did that. And the Ninth Circuit said, nope, that was not a fiduciary action, right? Because every business decision an employer makes can have an adverse impact on an employee benefit plan, but not all give rise to fiduciary concerns. So that employer might have broken 27 other laws. Very possible, probable. Um, but they didn't violate a fiduciary duty because they weren't acting in the roles of fiduciary. Um, so there are a number of um, examples here. I don't want to go through all of them, but um, sort of making this distinction between settler functions, decisions sometimes we have to make, and fiduciary functions. Now, that doesn't mean there's not limits on the decisions you make as settlers, right? There are other laws that apply. So like in that Ninth Circuit case, as I said, that employer that fired the person or put them on administrative leave because they were cooperating with the DOL, they probably broke a number of other laws. Um, and so you still have to take things in consideration, like Title VII, for example, right? Um, so if you're designing benefits as a settler, 
you have to care about Title VII. And one of the things that I'm talking to employers right now a lot about, and San Francisco's obviously very progressive, but you know, I come from Indiana. So um, we're talking a lot about gender-affirming care in plans. And you know, Supreme Court decided a case three years ago um, at the Bostock case where they recognize that sexual orientation and gender identity are protected by Title VII. And so that runs to benefit plans as well. So while you don't necessarily have a fiduciary duty to add gender affirming care to a plan, because I don't think that's a fiduciary decision, because it's a plan design question, I would say that you're risking violating Title VII, another law, if you don't add gender-affirming care to a plan. And so I'm, I'm actually talking to a lot of employers about this right now. So, you know, even as a settler, you don't have free reign, um, but you have to take other, th other things into consideration. But you can draw lines between employee groups as long as you're not violating a discrimination law. Um, you can make differentiations between plan options um, so, you know, plan A has this level of copayment and these benefits. Plan B has a different level of copayment. Um, there might be different economics under the plans. We might be trying to get different employees to go to different plans. Um, so, for example, uh, at my firm, we have a very high deductible health plan that, you know, we've sort of designed for the highly compensated because they can handle a really high, high deductible. But we have a PPO plan for people that can't handle a high deductible. Um, because we know our employees, I mean, we've got very highly compensated partners, as you might imagine, and we have people that work in a mailroom. So, you know, we realize we have to make those distinctions. Again, not fiduciary decision, but these are business decisions that we make as a settler, and as long as we're not discriminating against people, you know, you can do that. And it makes sense sometimes to do those things. Can I just, can I just make sure I'm clear? So when you say not discriminate, that even though the mailroom person could still enroll in the high deductible Absolutely. if he or she wants to. So yep. you, don't, you don't tailor this for, oh, this is only for you because your income is X and below. So, okay. no, that, that's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that, Commissioner, because, um, because if we did that, we'd violate a different law, right? right? We'd violate um, the non-discrimination rules that apply to self-funded health plans. And we'd have to tax all the highly compensated people on all their benefits. So yes, that's a very good point, yeah. But we designed the different plans thinking that people may get driven to certain plans because it might make more sense to them. Okay, so let's, let's get off that for a moment and, and move on a little bit to um, you know, the duty of impartiality. Um, and again, this is, again, you, you, know, you owe a duty to all members and beneficiaries um, and respecting that duty requires to, you to be impartial. So, um, you know, we're gonna have an election, right? We just talked about it. we're gonna have an election soon. And that is an election that, um, uh, where members elect board members. Um, we have some people that are appointed by governmental entities or uh, the mayor. And this is extremely common, right, on boards like yours all over the country. Um, people are appointed by different constituencies. Um, I guess what I would say is, um, what this duty of impartiality means is that once you are elected, once you're appointed, you don't represent that group. You represent the plan, you represent the trust. You don't represent the mayor's office, you don't represent the controller's office, you don't represent the members. Now, you have a viewpoint, right? But at the end of the day, when it comes time to make a vote, 
if the vote makes sense to benefit the whole plan, um, but it's going to disadvantage maybe some of your constituency, your duty is to the plan, not to a piece of the constituency. And that's what the duty of impartiality talks about. Um, and that's a hard thing. Um, and again, I talk to boards all the time about this um, because we think we're beholden to those that got us here. But once we're here, we represent the whole plan um, and the, and the um, assets in the plan. The duty of loyalty also requires us to look at plan expenses. So we have to look at um, how, much, how much is this vendor costing us? How much is, you know, are these network providers costing us? Um, how much are we paying our attorney, right? I mean, all of these things are things that you have to look at. That's part of the fiduciary duty of loyalty is monitoring plan expenses. Um, because only plan expenses can be paid from trusts. And you know, part of the role that um, you know, Iptikar probably looks at is what's getting paid from the trust? Um, because if it's not a plan expense, if it's not related to the administration of the plan, if it's not related to the payment of benefits from the plan, it can't be paid from the trust. And monitoring those fees and how the expenses are paid is part of you know, fiduciary duty. Um, the next sort of large category of duties comes under the duty of prudence. Um, and and this, this, this includes things like um, the duty to diversify your investments, um, the duty to act with the care, skill, and prudence um, of someone in a similar um, situation, the duty to delegate responsibilities, and the duty to be informed. And we'll run through these pretty quickly because these obviously um, make a lot of sense. You have a duty to be informed. And you know, just sort of sitting here today, uh, this board <laughs> clearly meets that duty. You've all looked at your materials. I can tell you've all looked at your materials. Um, you've come with thoughtful questions. You've looked at everything. Um, but you know, it means being aware of what the plan documents say, um, being familiar with your charter. Um, sometimes you know, it's kind of painful to go back. But you know, I usually, with, the, you know, with a lot of the investment subcommittees that I sit on with other clients, you know, once a year, we roll out the charter, and we make everybody read it and um, see if there needs to be updates. And just, to, again, remind everybody what's there and what, what the charter says. So the duty to be informed is obviously um, important. The duty to exercise care in delegation is obviously important, particularly for a board like this. Right? You all meet once a month, um, and you obviously do things in the middle, and you're keeping informed, but you know, lots of other people are doing the day-to-day -day work. So you have overall fiduciary duties, but a lot of people are sort of um, doing the day-to-day -day work of making sure those duties get implemented and, and your decisions get implemented. And so it's really important that as you're delegating that you, you monitor those people and you monitor what's going on. You know, um, Executive Director Yance, reports to the board are a part of that. Um, reports from the, on the strategic plan are part of that. It's that duty to select people carefully and to monitor them and make sure you're hearing what's going on. Um, and it's important for you to ask questions, as you've done. Um, but that's part of that duty of delegation and that duty of monitoring. Duty of prudence also requires diversification. So as you're looking at the trust fund, um, you know, it's your duty to make sure that that 
that money is there and that money is prudently invested um, and that you don't get into the situation that caused the need for ERISA in the first place. And again, I know you're, you're doing these things, um, but uh, it's good, good to mention that from, from time to time. Um, and again, sort of this duty to monitor, I've alluded to this already, uh, to conduct regular investment reviews, um, to talk to your investment manager, your investment advisors, to compare expenses, um, and making sure the expenses are benchmarked. So you should be looking at, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you paying third-party administrators? And is that reasonable? Are you benchmarking that against, um, you know, other third-party administrators? And those things usually come out in requests for production, or production, sound like a litigator, request for um, proposals uh, <coughs> as, you're, as you're looking at fees. And then finally, there's the duty to follow plan documents. Um, you know, we've talked about this all, already. You know, you have to follow what the plan says um, by the book. So you have to understand the governing documents of the plan, the statutes that um, you know govern the administration of the plan and trust, and the context in which the plan exists. Again, this sort of goes back to my example of appeals. So when the appeals come before you, you know you need to understand what the plan document says. And something that um, something that you know I know a lot of employers struggle with. I talk to them all the time, particularly this time of year, as a matter of fact, and that is. You know, people have missed enrollment deadlines, or uh, people you know forgot about open enrollment, or people forgot to put their child on the plan after the child was born, and you know these are things that are tough, and we you know we have to think about how to deal with those situations. <coughs> plan documents typically have deadlines for those things, and you know we have to sort of ask ourselves: Do we follow these deadlines really um, stringently, or do we? bend rules sometimes. And I'm not telling you what one should do or not do, but it all comes back down to planned documents because when we deviate from planned documents in significant ways, we open ourselves up to liability, right? So I think that um, particularly on appeals, whatever those appeals are, it's important to go back and see what does the document require? What have we designed, right? Because the board designs the benefits. So what have we designed and what do we want you know, are we going to are we going to stick to that? So there, there are sort of negative duties, right? The other side of the coin is there are prohibited transactions. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, you obviously can't deal with plan assets in your own interest. You can't make loans of plan assets to yourselves. Um, you know, you you can't uh, bring your buddy in. Uh, to run the plan, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, um, I probably don't need to say too much about that. Those uh, make a lot of sense. So let's just talk quickly about fiduciary liability. This is something we talked about before, and I know there was some um, follow-up to this after actually the last time I came and talked to you. So uh, I usually often put this slide first because it usually gets people's attention and makes them pay attention to me during the the presentation, but fiduciaries are personally liable, right? At the end of the day, um, you're personally liable for the decisions that you make. Now, um, one of the pieces of homework that came out of my last presentation was, are you all covered for that? Are you indemnified by that? And um, I know Eric went back and some people went back and sort of looked at whether you're protected um, under 
um, California Government Code's indemnification clause, and I think the determination was yes, you are. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but that's typically only if you're acting, you know, sort of reasonably and in good faith in your role. Um, and everyone on this panel is doing that, I'm confident. Um, but it's something always to keep in mind. Um, so let's just talk quickly about some specific acts, you know, fiduciary acts related to health plans. And, and we've touched on a number of these things along the way. But <clears throat> obviously, managing the assets in the trust uh, is a fiduciary obligation. And not only, you know, obviously the, the contributions that may come from employers, but contributions that come from employees, those are all plan assets and have to be managed in a, in a reasonably prudent way. Uh, maintaining and applying claims and appeals procedures. Um, you, you obviously have claims and appeals procedures related to the plan. Um, uh, and I've probably talked enough about <coughs> appeals, um, but it is important to follow those claims and appeals procedures very carefully, um, impartially, and consistently. Communicating with participants. Um, there was a Supreme Court case a number of years ago that talked about communicating with participants and the fiduciary liability that can come with that. So obviously, we want to put out accurate summary plan descriptions and, and communications to, to members, retirees, uh, and actives both. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously fiduciary obligation, and it's something that you obviously delegate to staff at HSS, so that happens. What the Supreme Court case was about was uh, a situation where the employer knew that they were probably going to get rid of a plan. Um, and, and they didn't tell anybody about that. And in fact, encouraged people to take this worse plan. And people did. And they lost their benefits. And so it literally was a case, it really kind of was a case of, um, Mis they were misleading them, I think. And so clearly under those circumstances, you can imagine, yeah, well, that, that's a problem. And, but the court said that's a fiduciary breach. Um, if you know you're going to make a change to a plan and people are relying on another fact and you know that, that's something you need to communicate to people or else that could be a fiduciary breach. Now, this doesn't mean that um, you know, just sort of misspeaking is a fiduciary breach. Um, Misspeaking can, though, still give rise to liability for the plan. You might not be violating a fiduciary duty, but if you tell someone that, oh, yeah, those, you know, these benefits are in place, or you're going to get that, might not violate a fiduciary duty, but you might create sort of a false contract. Attorneys call it promissory estoppel, that you've sort of promised something to somebody, and now that you've said it out loud, they can rely on it, even if it's not something that's otherwise covered by the plan. So, you know, it's, it's important to be careful when we're speaking to members about plan benefits to make sure we understand what they are and um, that they, they actually are plan benefits. And then the last thing I'll mention, um, as far as sort of specific fiduciary duties, is selecting service providers and negotiating rates with networks. 
Um, there are a number of slides on this, but what I really want to say about this, and you know, you're sort of going through this now, I think you've got an RFP out right now, I think you said earlier. Um, it's, it's critical, and obviously the contracts people have worked very hard on this. Um, it's critical to go through this RFP process rigorously and to document um, responses, document deliberations, um, because you need to be able to demonstrate at the end of the day that you prudently selected vendors, that you looked at their fees, that you looked at you know, other alternatives so that you know, um, members won't have a claim that you breach your fiduciary duty and, and were maybe conflicted in choosing a vendor um, and that you looked at everything um, properly. So um, I'm actually just, I'm gonna stop there because the rest of the slides kind of summarize a number of the things that I've said. Um, and certainly want to, you know, open up for discussion or questions. Uh, Commissioner Follinsby. You know, this is my eighth year on this board, and each time I hear, I learn something. And this is this is a spectacular presentation. Oh, thank you. And I, despite the fact I've heard some things from you before, I've learned more. So I want to thank you, number one, because it really, and part of it is just experience of, of dealing with these issues. Mm -hmm. And I have to again, you know, combine that with the compliments to the our, our staff to our, our executive director and our staff, that a lot of the items that you have covered, we are presented with. And so in terms of the information to make decisions on appeal, always includes what the plan says, might down to the last detail. Mm -hmm. And so we, I think, have been privileged to have a staff that are acting, um, we have delegated and are acting appropriately, and we can now recognize, I can now recognize even better how they are. The, this, this RFP process, we've gone through quite a bit of discussion as a board mm -hmm. regarding how we delegate this, because we are not involved in reviewing the applications, interviewing applicants, these kind of things. We have delegated all this. And so it does make it even more important that we understand the process and understand who we've delegated to and they are covering all bases. And we've been asked for input and all that. So I think that we are serving in our fiduciary role yes. in that regard, even though we may not be physically yes. involved. I want to make sure that I'm clear on that. Yeah, so I, this, is, this is a really good point. Um, and I probably glossed over this a little too much. If you don't have the expertise to do something as a fiduciary, it's your job to find somebody with the expertise to do it, right? And if you're not doing that, then you're not fulfilling your fiduciary duty. And so it's perfectly proper to find the right people to run an RFP process, for example, and supervise them, obviously, to some extent, but then to be able to rely on what you're hearing from them. Um, it's the same way with uh, an investment manager, for example, right? Uh, I serve on a lot of, not, I, I advise a lot of investment committees and, you know, people that sit on there are HR people or they're, I represent a lot of hospitals, they're doctors, they're whoever. They're not investment experts. And so it's their duty to retain the experts to help them do that. And, and in the same way, hiring competent people um, and supervising them and having them do the RFP process is a, is a proper thing to do. Commissioner Cannon. If I can also uh, echo uh, Commissioner Follinsby's uh, 
compliments uh, to you. you. You threaded a needle that we um, have had the privilege of working together on as a board uh, in, in the short time I've been on, um, almost five years, where our, our charter, uh, there, there is language that directs us to focus uh, our, our, our prioritization around our, our membership, the, the entirety of the members that we represent. Uh, but there is also, as I'm learning and gleaning from your presentation today, a fiduciary duty to the system as a whole. If we mm -hmm. don't pay attention to the functionality of the system, uh, it won't be in existence to serve our members. And so um, I, I wanted to compliment you on, on threading the needle on that very challenging concept. So thank you for the presentation. With all of the supporting documents, uh, I found it very helpful. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Any other questions? We're all clear. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's late in the day. You know, we're trying, all trying to get out of here at this point. Well, right? <laughs> we also, uh, I, I noticed that you continue to go back to the word investment. Yeah. Uh, several times. And in our last cycle of this, I got into some uh, hot water by asking questions about how our trust funds were invested and so forth. And it, it rippled outside of the room to the treasurer and on and on and on. And we do have our funds, again, invested under a broader investment vehicle of the city. Right. And that office does indeed periodically port, works with our uh, CFO on these uh, more detailed aspects of that. But at the time I raised the question, I, it was sort of like I had addressed <coughs> myself in public. Uh, it was just a real uh, bit of kind of cursory and sideways blowback about what is he doing and why is he asking questions and who is this person and so on and so on. So we got past it and, and uh, if, if I may keep asking the question. Yes, <laughs> I have not, not because there's necessarily anything wrong. No, but you should ask the questions. But I'm just saying that yeah. given the climate, it was sort of like <coughs> somehow that that's how it was construed and it was not my intent at the time, yeah. nor has it been since. But anyway, Thank you. Uh, Thank you all for your attention. I think Any other? Can I just make yeah. one maybe very minor appeal? Of course. And that is that as I went through the draft and then this one, um, I missed page numbers. I and some, some of them have page numbers that on the draft were sort of in black that were so small I couldn't even see in the draft. And now all of a sudden I see page 52 <coughs> in your final that I didn't see pages before. And as we ask questions and as I want to remind myself, it's helpful to have visible page numbers on every page. That's a function of my assistant was out on Friday. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not smart enough to do I'm PowerPoint. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying <laughs> that's all useful. That, yeah. No, I know. I usually do that because someone else can do it for me. So I apologize. Are there other questions or comments? Thanks for your attention. Thank you very much for your, your time today and your expertise and uh, sharing with not only this board but with the public as well. This is not only an educational forum as I continue to reinforce for the board itself but also for our membership as well. So thank you, Chris, for your time. Uh, is there any <coughs> further board comment on this item? We'll now have public comment on this item. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. 
For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. One caller has specifically entered. I will indicate when there are no more callers in the queue, and you will hear a brief silence as we transition between callers. Thank you. And caller, I'm unmuting you now. Welcome, caller. Hi, this is Fred Sanchez from Protect Our Benefits. I wish I would have listened to this fiduciary training 50 years ago when I first started working for the city and county of San Francisco. It is by far the best training I've ever received. I took highlights and I'll take this back to protect our benefits to remind our directors as to our role as fiduciaries for retired city workers. Fabulous training. It makes me understand why I have such confidence in the health service system. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And moder the moderator will let us know if there is any other callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are no other callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Uh, we'll now move to item 14. I'm advised that there are no updates from plan representatives. Has that in any way changed? I'm looking out at the audience. I'm not seeing anyone stand up or raise their hand. So I'm going to say that we will, we have. Um, I'd like to um, ask that you please keep us informed as to the negotiations. Can you speak uh, up, Karen? United Healthcare. Karen, we can't hear you. And well, I think into the mic. we have been kept informed uh, by, the, by the executive director of this of the system yeah. uh, at each board meeting, and if there have been other developments. In, information in between board meetings is yes, an important issue. Yes, and as I was going to go on to say, that if we, if we as individual commissioners have further inquiries, we can always go back to the executive director to find out the individual status. I know that uh, Abby has made uh, herself available to me and I know that she has made herself available to other commissioners to raise questions outside of board meetings on various board matters that are coming before us. So the details of the negotiation has been sort of public knowledge. Uh, we have authorized and encouraged her to use all of her uh, will and presence, uh, if you will, with both parties of this negotiation since we don't have a direct uh, influence over either one of the parties, but we've asked her time in and time out. And if we have any other subsequent concerns, she's made herself available to uh, to us to to look at those issues. So uh, we can do that in between meetings as well on an individual basis. Uh, Commissioner, Can Fowler? I may make a comment to our Kaiser representative? that um, apparently I noticed in this fine print that the, vac the walk-in vaccine um, center has moved um, from its location, um, you know, um, in, from one location now down to the French campus. 
and talking to my very bright and well-read uh, friends who are Kaiser members, they missed that. Um, and I confirmed this when I drove by just to see if the center really was closed or if I misread it. But it wasn't widely put out. And getting back to our issue around prevention and access and communication, um, it can be very frustrating for people who finally get up the courage to find the time to uh, walk in for a flu shot or a COVID vaccine because they are due to find that the center was moved um, and just to see a piece of paper on the window of the old center. So I ask, and these kind of decisions seem minute, but they are actually important to our members um, and to our uh, mission of getting uh, um, preventive care out there. Yes, uh, Representative from Kaiser, please. Denise Rodriguez with Kaiser Permanente. Uh, thank you for that feedback. Good to know that these small changes have a big impact. And so one of the things Debbie and I do is meet regularly with the medical group administrator. And so we'll incorporate that into our agenda to learn about some of these changes so that we can communicate it through your communications team. I got an email. I'll see you post the meeting with another small item as well. <laughs> Not about vaccinations on another point. So, are there any other questions from, regarding plan representatives uh, and updates? If not, we now move to item 15, which is... Oh. Oh, there's no public... Well, there was public comment. There was public comment. Yes, uh, Abby or Holly, I see your eyes. And I, uh, is there any further board comment on uh, the plan representative update? If not, we'll take public comment, now that there was comment from a plan representative. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment and no one has approached the podium, we'll move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. And moderator, you can let me know if you see. Otherwise, I do see two callers in the line right now. One caller has raised their hand. And caller, I will unmute you. Welcome, caller. Doesn't seem that that caller may. Oh. Hi, hi. I don't believe that caller was an intending to make public comment. So, with no other callers uh, with raised hands, public comment is now closed. All right, thank you. And that agenda item is closed. The last agenda item is adjournment, which I do now. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.